You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. You are the dumbest smart person I have ever met in my life. Nice. You are the dumbest dumb person I have ever met. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 563 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, February 18th, 2023. And just a quick word, if you haven't checked it out yet, do go and listen to my episode with Micah Hirschberger, my first cousin on my dad's side. One of my dad's younger sisters is Micah's mother. And as you may know, although it's been a while, it's been a minute, he and I have collaborated on writing and brainstorming content for writing, both fictional and non-fictional, as well as podcasting for years and years. And I think you'll be interested in the discussion that we just had. We just wrapped up a signal conversation, which I have quite a lot of with him and with other of my closest friends and advisors, my brain trust, my own personal brain trust, if you will. We had a great conversation, as we always do, over Signal about Mark Morano's book. And on the front end, not any surprise gotcha after or midway through, but on the front end, I told him, you know, I'm thinking about trying something different with podcasting because here we have all these great private conversations. And of course, if you want them to stay private, that's fine. And they will. But this would make some really good content for a podcast episode. And so it's experimental. It's the first time we've tried anything like this. But we have quite a lot of these private conversations back and forth. And I thought, you know, if you would be willing, and maybe some of my other friends and family members, if they would be willing to have some back and forth conversation with me, it could either be full length podcast episode material, or it could be the basis for supplemental segments within my typical podcast episodes where we're talking back and forth about something that interests them, something that interests us both. And you get maybe the residue, it's good residue, it's great residue of these conversations anyways with a lot of my podcasting. But maybe instead of just getting the residue, maybe if some of my friends and family like Micah are agreeable, you can just get the conversation itself and you can get to sit in on our back and forth, our discussion, in this case of Mark Morano's book, The Great Reset. So that is what that last episode really is. That's what it's about. And do check it out. Let me know what you think, if you would. And if you want to hear more content like that or even possibly if you don't, (laughs) I think it's the first of many to come. But I am interested all the more in relation to this conversation about the Great Reset. I'm interested all the more in exploring what we've got here in Genesis 49. And I'm just going to read it for you, the whole chapter, and I will explain after I've read it how this relates to Conversations Surrounding the Great Reset by Mark Morano. So starting from the top, verse one, then Jacob called his sons and said, 
Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Yahweh. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham, 
bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Okay, so here we have Genesis 49. And some of this, I will admit, is hard to understand because as a father of seven sons myself, the things that Jacob says to his sons are not all pleasant And one would think that for those who have even behaved badly, your parting words to them would not be so harsh, so brief and so harsh. And yet it's interesting and it says something about the family dynamic in Jacob's household and in what will come in the generations that follow the death of Jacob on the descendants of each of his sons based on how they have lived their lives, how they have conducted themselves towards their father, towards one another, towards other people, as their father has observed. And how but by some gifting of foresight from God himself does Jacob know some of the things that he says here? If he is just making it up or if he's just speaking in an emotional way, just in a sentimental way, well, then we may say, that perhaps they worked to fulfill what it is that he said about them in the years and decades to come. Maybe their descendants after them kept a record and reminded one another and reminded their children and their children's children after them of what Jacob had said before he died. But either way, it's remarkable, apart from God supernaturally working in the lives of Jacob and the sons of Jacob and their sons after them, the children of Israel, apart from God, working in their lives in a miraculous way. It's remarkable that any of this would be passed down from one generation to the next, in part because some of this is so unflattering. Now, I'll just share briefly, without going into too much detail, that in doing the genealogical research for my family on both sides, I sometimes find it very difficult to get substantive narrative details about my ancestors. But even just a few generations back, when there is infighting, when there is dysfunction, if there's been sibling rivalry, if there has been tragedy, if there has been upset or a reversal of fortunes, it can be easy to lose what otherwise would have been remembered about one's ancestors. And in our day in particular, and perhaps in my generation in particular, there are so many things that you could spend your time and attention on other than learning about your ancestors that particularly if there's a painful memory attached to or a painful relationship attached to some of these memories, if they survive even just two generations, that is amazing. That's amazing. That's uncommon. That's atypical. For them to survive many generations, perhaps, let's say, for instance, 400 years of hard bondage in Egypt 
after Jacob passes away, we know that there's a Pharaoh who comes to be who is not remembering Joseph and does not look kindly, treat kindly with, does not look kindly on the Hebrews in Egypt, but all the more rather than less as there is a difficulty, as there are trying circumstances, as there is oppression, I think it's remarkable that these blessings come down through the generations and we are reading about them. We are still reading about them right now. That's amazing. Just in and of itself, all the more maybe rather than less when there are some rather unpleasant predictions or prophecies even. Some of these are not blessings in a sense, but they are a kind of telling of the destiny, which is to say that these things are destined to happen. It is their destiny and also, in some sense, their prior behavior is predictive of what their future outcome will be. And who would know that better than God? When we see throughout Old Testament and New Testament prophecies coming to pass, being fulfilled, and we also see God strategically here and there even suspending the natural laws which he has set up for the universe to operate according to, occasionally intervening in ways which only make sense as a demonstration of his power to make known his purpose and his will to authenticate a spokesperson, a prophet, or an apostle, communicating the word of the Lord to the people, sharing the gospel message about Jesus Christ and salvation in the Messiah who has come. When we see that, And we recognize that God is telling us what he will do, what he will accomplish, what he will bring to pass in the lives of these men and their descendants. And then we read through this story of Jacob calling his sons to his bedside and telling them what the outcome will be. I think the most reasonable conclusion to come to is that this is not just Jacob being sentimental. He's not just speaking to his emotions and his feelings towards his sons. He's sharing with them things that God has revealed to him about what the outcome will be for his sons and for their tribes, the tribes which will be their descendants in Israel. As such, it's remarkable that God shares what will be their destiny with Jacob. And surely God knows full well that Jacob is going to share with his sons. That's how I read it, that God tells Jacob these things, knowing Jacob will tell his sons. Actually, even with the dream that God gives to Joseph, it doesn't surprise God that Joseph has these dreams, which he then tells to his brothers and to his mother and his father, and that his father is going to correct him and that his brothers are going to hate him even more for telling these dreams. But notice the compare and contrast between his way of interpreting his own dream as being significant and as foretelling what will happen in the future as being from God, as well as the interpretation being from God, the dream being from God and the interpretation being from God. Notice the compare and contrast between his way of relating to the dream that he's got from God 
in the way that his brothers apparently perceive or relate to or feel about or at least act in relation to said dream that they would hate the brother for the dream that God has given to him, I think is an echo of Cain hating Abel when God accepted the sacrifice which Abel had offered and rejected the sacrifice that Cain had offered. Cain's beef really truly at root wasn't first and foremost with Abel. It was first and foremost with God, or he should have taken it up with God and asked earnestly, humbly, yes, but earnestly, why did you reject my sacrifice? He doesn't do that according to the text. Maybe he did it, but methinks not. Because what it does record is completely out of character. His hating his brother and then plotting to kill and murder his brother is out of character with what one would expect had Cain gone to God and asked why his sacrifice was rejected. So also with Joseph's brothers, so also, not to be redundant here, but so also with Jacob's sons. And so it's remarkable to me that God gives the dreams that he does to Joseph, even though in a certain measure, those set in motion or help to further set in motion or cement a hatred and animosity that his brothers feel towards him and will lead to them initially plotting to kill him, also instead selling him into slavery. For that matter, that chain of events, coupled with being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, being thrown in prison, interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker to Pharaoh, then interpreting Pharaoh's dream, which God also presumably gave to Pharaoh, that sets in motion Joseph being in the position to oversee preparations for seven years of famine. And the preparation for seven years of famine results in his brothers and his father and their families and their livestock and all that they have moving to Egypt, which will result in 400 years of bondage until God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so you can't escape. You can't escape the narrative implications as to the character of God and as to the way that God interacts with man over generations, over the course of centuries even. You can't escape the implications as to who God is and what he's about. And insofar as the character of God does not change, and we still should be reading and studying Genesis to understand who God is now and who he forever will be, we do well to listen up and to pay attention and to wonder if we don't know how current events even are being used, utilized, worked, maneuvered to God's good purposes and to the fulfillment of his promises in the future. Which is to say that we should rather be more surprised when someone suggests coincidence than when someone says there's a pattern. So I'm reading a book right now, and I'll admit I'm having a little bit of a hard time of it, making my way all the way through to the end, but a book by William Strauss and Neil Howe called Generations. This was published back in 1991, 
originally. And this is a way of perceiving or understanding or studying the history of the United States of America in particular. They don't go too far afield beyond just the U.S. and American history, but they talk about the repeating pattern of generations, generational types. And I think part of why I don't have an easy time reading this book by them compared with the easy time I had reading their book, The Fourth Turning, is because I don't see any reference to God. Maybe I'm missing it, but I don't see them acknowledging the hand of God in the destiny of the United States of America or in the history of the United States or in the people of the United States or in the history of the world for that matter. I don't see them acknowledging the hand of God at work. Now, that doesn't mean that they're wrong insofar as they're explaining certain observed phenomena and repeating patterns throughout history. Hopefully, they're not just making the evidence fit their theory. Although, of course, of course, people who don't like their theory will say that's what they're doing. But then how much of that is because a lot of us don't want to believe in destiny or predestination? What I mean is how many of us are repulsed by the idea that God would work through our history or would establish a pattern that has some consistency that is a repeating pattern, which in some measure removes a sense of control over our lives where we want to feel as though we are in control of our lives. How many of us are repulsed by the idea of a repeating pattern or a certain destiny to current events, a certain foregone conclusion quality? How many of us are repulsed by that actually because it might lead to a greater sense of responsibility in certain ways that we don't want? We want the freedom. And so we don't like predestination because it would take away from the sense that we can make decisions and those decisions are meaningful and consequential. How many of us don't like the idea of predestination because it gives a kind of gravity to what's going on and it makes it harder to just do whatever we want there too or not do whatever we don't want to do? These are important considerations that I should take to heart in my own case. I should be a student of my own heart and ponder whether that's what I am reluctant to (laughs) enthusiastically read this book due to. And also, too, if I'm honest, part of the reason that I think I'm struggling with reading this book is because as much as I enjoyed The Fourth Turning, when I started talking about the themes in The Fourth Turning with other people who were less familiar I got less than a energetic response like, oh, tell me more, right? Tell me more. I'm so curious, right? What, what's going to happen next? I got a little bit of interest and curiosity when I said, these guys accurately predicted that there would be a major crisis in 2020. There was a little bit of curiosity like, hmm, interesting. When did they write the book? 1991. Hmm, that's odd. But then the curiosity just as quickly faded or 
something or another was said to change the subject, or they said, well, yeah, I think you should probably be careful about that because it sounds a little bit like astrology or whatever, right? So, you know, don't get too deep into that because that's, you know, who knows, right? Like who knows what that's supposed to be about. But do consider with me, if you will, consider with me how in Jacob's case, he is telling his sons what will happen in the days to come. Also consider how often that happens in the biblical narrative. And the book in Genesis begins with prophecy and promise and foretelling. The book ends with revelation, not having all been fulfilled, but being prophesied and promised. And here we are, we're in the middle somewhere, and there's disagreement as to exactly where. Some people think we are in the book of Revelation right this moment. Others would say, we'll see. It's easier and easier to see how some of what we read in Revelation could be fulfilled with certain modern technological and political developments. But nevertheless, why does it seem as though there is so much indifference to that? There's so much, if not hostility, apathy. It's a curious thing because you would imagine if I said, I'm going to tell you what will happen next. People would be interested to know. You know, in our Wednesday night discussion of Acts 15 and 16, the last paragraph of Acts 15 and then the whole chapter of Acts 16, we read about Paul and Silas traveling to Philippi and being followed by a girl with a familiar spirit, which is to say a demon. And this demon gives her the ability, according to Acts, to tell people's fortunes. And that is to say, to predict what is going to happen in their lives, at least believably enough to where people will pay money. And so she's a slave girl, and her parents are apparently nowhere to be found. Maybe they died or maybe they sold her to try and provide for themselves. Either way, either way, she's a piece of property as far as her masters are concerned, and she's a lucrative piece of property. She makes money for them, telling fortunes, predicting what will happen in people's lives. Now, you might say, well, if it's a demon, then maybe maybe be careful. Maybe maybe be careful how much power and foresight we say demons have, how much predictive ability they have. Sure. Okay. Fine. Fine. But not for no reason are her masters angry when the demon is cast out of her, angry enough to cause trouble for Paul and Silas, that they get beaten, they get thrown in prison for causing trouble in Philippi, not for no reason. So there's something there. There's something there. But that's just it. It was lucrative for her to have the ability to tell people's fortunes. Her masters made money off of it. And what that means is that people who had money that they could have exchanged for food or clothing 
or expanding their house or buying nicer sofas and love seats for their living room or what have you. Instead, we're spending a portion on knowing their fortune. Now, why is that? Why would they want to predict what would happen next in their lives? For only one reason, really, so that they could anticipate and they could plan and they could prepare and so that they could be ready. If bad things would happen, maybe they could change those bad outcomes into good outcomes by making different choices. Like when Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol is shown his future based on how he's acting right now, what's going to come to pass. He is shown with the ghost of Christmas future, his being dead and people rummaging through his belongings, in some sense, looting his property because he doesn't need it anymore. And nobody having a kind word to say about him, except his nephew, perhaps, if memory serves. But him being unmourned. And why does the ghost of Christmas future show him this? Because the intention is that he would make choices accordingly and not have that outcome, not have that bad end. And so we see this, for instance, in the case of Jonah being sent to Nineveh to announce the coming destruction of that city by God. And the people of Nineveh believe that the prediction is true and that that is what will come to pass if they do not repent. And so they repent. And what does the text say? It says that God did not destroy that city at that time. In other words, that generation that repented was not destroyed. And Jonah has a very sour response to this, but we shouldn't. We should be glad that there was repentance, that there was a turning away from actively doing evil, a turning away from passively neglecting to do the good that they ought to do, which is also sin. We should be glad that they repented and were spared at that time. That's glorious. And again, this tells us something of the character of God, which has not changed. Even if we are not the Ninevites, nor are we Jonah, God is still God. Now, a word or two about this revival in Asbury. ChristianityToday.com has an article written by Tom McCall, published February 13th, so five days ago. Asbury Professor, we're witnessing a surprising work of God. Subtitle, Why I'm Hopeful About the Revival Breaking Out in Our Chapel and Its Implications for the Campus and Beyond. And in this article, which I'll include a link to in the description for this podcast episode, we see the story being told of how it came to be that this revival struck up at Asbury. There have been other revivals at Asbury in decades past, by the way. These are Methodists, and they do love them some revival. But I note, and this is the reason I bring it up, I note a certain article from Joel Abbott over at Not The Bee, and I've talked a lot about content he's posted to Not The Bee, and I've really enjoyed Not The Bee generally and his content in particular. You've heard a lot about stories that he posted to Not The Bee that I became aware of because of his posting of them, his drawing out certain details that were important. I really appreciate Joel Abbott's work 
over at Not to Be, but he writes this piece about the Asbury revival, and it's titled, Let's Have Some Real Talk About This Whole Asbury Revival Thing. We'll start with a lesson from the Western Front. In his write-up, he says there's a scene in Netflix's new adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front that absolutely chills me to the bone. No, it isn't when a man gets cooked alive by a French flamethrower. It isn't seeing a man's torso rotting at the top of a tree. It's this, and he's got a little gif of these young Brits ecstatic about the announcement that they're going off to war. They're excited. They're thrilled. They have no idea what they're going off to. They have no idea what they're getting themselves into. But they will know. They will know. And it's a long piece. It's a long piece by Joel Abbott. This too, I will put a link for in the description of this podcast episode. But there's a kind of fatalistic, cynical, predictive, wet blanket quality to it. Where, yes, people are excited about this revival at Asbury. Yes, I know they're really enthusiastic and they think this is going to change everything. Yes, I know that they are living their best life right now, but just wait. Just wait. Now, he admits in a fair, uh, respectable, commendable, admirable way that there are two types of responses from Christians to this whole Asbury revival business. There is the one kind, which he describes as milk toast, which can only say good things about it. And then there's the other kind, which is the battle-hardened veterans of the culture wars of recent years and decades. And for those of us who have been fighting, even just to talk about what is going on that is creeping into the church, which is creeping into our doctrinal statements, our Christian literature, our supposedly Christian leadership and guidance, even just to talk about these things is a struggle, not out there, not in the world, first and foremost, but in our churches, first and foremost. We've taken our licks in the church, trying to warn about critical race theory creeping into our Christian testimony or gender theory creeping into our Christian testimony. Wokeness as a false gospel creeping into our churches, creeping into our fellowship, and trying to cancel even within the church, yes, even within the church, anybody who would say, wait a second, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. That's not biblical. Because what what do we find? What do men like Joel Abbott and myself find when we raise those points in the American church? We find that we are told the only unchristian thing here is that you dared to question the validity of someone's woke Christianity. All the more if they are a brand new Christian or if they're at the very tippy top of Big Eva. If you criticize Tim Keller, whoa, who are you to criticize Tim Keller? But then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have somebody who just came to Christ and they're not really well-versed, no pun intended, in the finer points of theology, there as well. Who are you to criticize them? You're going to rain on their parade. And you know what, Joel Abbott, if you're listening, 
God bless you. And I can relate. I can relate to feeling like a grizzled veteran of sorts and seeing this enthusiasm about the Asbury revival and feeling a tinge of skepticism. And that might be wise to hold on, wait a second. But let me just say, we should be praying for a revival and we should be excited about revival. And if revival ends up taking on some qualities that are out of step with what God's word tells us about his character and what he calls us to, what he's commanded, what he's prohibited, what he requires, what he promises, what his plans are, then that's where we weigh in and watch, watch for that because it probably will crop up here, there, and everywhere for those who are not Christians except by means of the testimony of this revival. But if this is something God is doing, here I will reference Gamaliel. If this is something that God is doing, then there's no stopping it, nor should we want to because we might find that we are opposing God. If this is not a work of God, then it won't last. And in that sense, we don't have to fear it because it will be its own worst enemy. Just give it time. But if this is a work of God and there would be revival, that would be such an answer to prayer. It really would. And if it wouldn't, It's only because we're not praying as we ought to. We should be praying for revival. Now, he concludes his article with some comments here about the goal not being to hope for a return of Christian culture. Our hope is in the return of Christ. Respectfully, not so fast, because the return of Christ will actually be the greatest possible fulfillment of generations, centuries of, millennia of Christian effort at Christian culture. This is not an either or. We need to understand that with some people saying we're not in it to win it like Andy Stanley, but all all the while doing all they can to throw the game in favor of the progressives and the godless. You know, they say we're not supposed to be fighting a culture war because the goal isn't. A Christian culture. The goal is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I fail to see, I fail to see how these are mutually exclusive options. In fact, I take some exception to, and perhaps even a little bit of offense at the insistence, the stubborn insistence that these two things are mutually exclusive, that to want a more Christian culture, a more Christian nation, a more Christian church dare I say it, is a distraction from wanting Christ. How could that be? How could that possibly be? If you would have Christ, what would Christ have? Except all of the above, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All of human history belongs to God. And when it says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that is not a ceiling. That's the floor, because even that much is hard for us to grasp and comprehend. That's just as much as we can handle in coming to terms with what belongs to God, what rightfully belongs to God, how rich he is, how wealthy he is. It all belongs to him. And it's time we started acting like it. If only we would, if only we would. But 
ambivalence, indifference, whether it comes in the form of active rebellion or just passive refusal to engage is something of a denial of the Lordship of Christ in every area of life. It's something of a denial to be indifferent or to say, this will not be. Now, I'm not endorsing the Asbury revival as though I need to, because again, as I said, as Gamaliel said regarding the early church, when there were efforts to silence the preaching of the apostles, if it's of God, then you won't be able to stop it. And if it's not, well, then you actually don't need to, you don't need to try to stop it because it'll destroy itself. But I note here, very practical problems. If we would say, we're just going to focus on our own business, our own lives, and therefore fulfill what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, aspire to live a quiet life, working with your hands, minding your own affairs, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, being dependent on no one. Here's a piece from the Billings Gazette. More millennials are leaving the nest to form their own households. Tim Henderson at stateline.org had his piece republished by Billings Gazette, February 11th. And I was just cleaning out my email inbox, which I do every two weeks on payday or the Saturday after payday. And I came across this one which as you can tell, being from February 11th was a week ago. So halfway through my cleaning out of the email inbox, but there's this very typical, and I know it's Billings, Montana. So you would expect more conservatism. The Billings Gazette is pretty decidedly in the bag for everything that the corporate media, the mainstream media spins for the rest of the country. Don't let the fact that it's a Montana newspaper fool you any. They are spinning it for the Democrats and for the progressive agenda and for the globalists, for the status quo on the coasts, many of whom have summer homes in the western part of the state or the central part of the state. But you read the headline and you think, wow, that's great. Man, maybe things aren't so bad after all. Maybe it's really looking up. If millennials are able to move out of their parents' basement and go buy their own homes, starting families, forming their own households, that's that's great. Well, scroll down. Scroll down a dozen or two dozen paragraphs. And I quote, however, the barriers to new household formation have grown higher as rents Home prices and mortgage rates all soared last year. The overall percentage of first-time home buyers, 26%, was an all-time low during the Realtors survey period, down from 34% the previous year. Racial disparities also worsened. Home buyers were 88% white from mid-2021 to mid-2022, up from 82% the year before. Rising rents are making it difficult for people to save for a down payment, further holding back black buyers who are also more likely than others to be first-time buyers, the Realtors report concluded. Now, what we see here is a reluctant admission that the Biden economy is not so great. When eggs are being smuggled over the southern border with Mexico into the U.S. because egg prices are so high, (laughs) the Biden economy is not doing so great. This is not building back better, actually, not for the U.S., not for Americans. 
But there's a reluctant admission that actually, no, this isn't good news. We were trying to mislead you with the headline and soften the bad news, which is what we all know, thank you, that the barriers to new household formation have grown as rents, home prices, and mortgage rates all soared last year. First-time home buyers. Now, think of this with me for just a moment. I mean, just bear with me. Indulge me for a moment. What should the percentage of home buyers be who are first-time home buyers? Ideally, can I can I ask that? Is anybody asking that? Does anybody have an answer to that? What should the percentage of first-time home buyers be compared to with the overall percentage of home buyers? I would love to know that. I want to know that number and I want to know what the ideal would be actually. Because there's a certain part of me that thinks that close to a hundred percent of home buyers should be first-time home buyers. If we have people buying homes that are suitable, that then they can continue to fix up and expand onto, add onto, maintain over time. It seems to me as though a very high percentage should be first-time home buyers because if you don't have one, well then you need to get one when you're trying to start your own family move out of your parents' basement, marry, have children. But I find an article here from self.inc, which says, since 2000, the portion of home buyers who are purchasing their first home has been an average of 38%. This was at its highest in 2009, when 47% of home buyers were purchasing for the first time. 2017 figures show the lowest proportion of first-time buyers in the market at 29%. However, the year also saw the highest number of overall home buyers since 2006. So in other words, and this is a little bit of a dated article, a little bit, because we've got updated numbers and they are worse. They are worse, but get that. The average since 2000 has been 38 Highest was almost 50. And the latest news by the admission of the Billings Gazette, their repost or republish, is that we're at 26 now. And their first thought of where to go with that is not to talk about why that is and how awful it is for everybody. Their first thought is to make this into a woke point and to talk about how this disproportionately impacts people of color. And I don't mean to be unpleasant or uncharitable towards people of color by any means, but we're all suffering. We're, we're all suffering here. We, we are all the worse off because the people in charge have decided to devalue our money through inflation and to crash our economy and to export our resources and our opportunity overseas at our expense. We are all the worse off for it. And somehow this is going to be turned right back around into being about racism here in the U.S. No, it's not about racism first and foremost. This is about the people who have their hands on the levers of power deciding that they always win. Even if everybody else has to lose, they will always win. They will always come out on top. It's the principle of the thing for them. But a curious thing, going back to Genesis, if we go back 
a few chapters before the death of Jacob. We see in 47, starting in verse 13, immediately after Jacob's family settles in Goshen, the famine is very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. That's a good word. That's a good word we should probably start using more often with our circumstances. Languish. Verse 14, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, flocks, herds, and donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became pharaohs. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And so in this way, right, in this way, we see, one, the character of God. And you might say, well, how can that be? This is an awful thing. This is an awful thing that everyone has sold all that they have and even their property and even themselves to Pharaoh and Pharaoh owns everything. That's awful. Hmm. Well, I suppose you should read on then, huh? But also we're no better. (laughs) We are no better. I think regardless of the reasons for COVID, regardless of what caused COVID, which only God ultimately knows. I can't claim to know. I can theorize. I have my suspicions. I have my doubts about the conventional narrative until the conventional narrative starts to agree more and more, which it has over time. Increasingly, my original suspicions have been validated more and more as the years have gone on. But regardless, it doesn't matter almost where COVID came from to the point that there is no new thing under the sun. The people in the story of Genesis and Joseph's presiding over Egypt, the people who ran out of food are just like the people today. Pharaoh is just like the global elites today. And I would say we're seeing a very similar sort of a circumstance where people's household debt is going up and up and up and up and times are tough. Food prices are going up and up. 
because guess what? Food supply relative the money supply is going in an opposite direction. That's why food costs are going up is because the rate of increase for food does not match the rate of increase for money. And this is both because the supply of money is increasing and it would seem the supply of food is decreasing. And we're seeing that being throttled intentionally. There's a couple of ways that this can work. One is that it's driven by the weather where there's a famine in the land. After seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, severe famine, and it's ecological. And there's also, when we're talking about managed economies, centrally planned economies, the leaders of the world's economies gathering together, calling each other up, having summits and forums. There's also every potentiality, every possibility of world leaders deciding to have a crisis so that then they can take advantage of all the same mechanisms psychologically, which saw the people of Egypt selling their livestock, their land, and even themselves to Pharaoh. Is that an absolute disaster right away, right that very second in the biblical account? No, not per se. I mean, they get their food, they eat, they live, they survive, but they are not in the same socioeconomic status on the other end that they were going into that famine. They're slaves and they own nothing. And I don't know if they're happy, but you will own nothing and you will be happy. We're seeing that orchestrated. It wasn't a prediction. It was a promise from people who regard themselves as in a position to make it so. And on the one hand, that's a disturbing thought. On the other hand, when they only can do as much as God allows them, when God allows them, and they will stop, they will cease to be a factor in our considerations at the very moment God intervenes and stops them, we know that their ability is not unlimited. And however however clever they think they are, they're actually just playing bit roles in the larger production that God has planned from the beginning. Before it's all over, that will be clear to all of us. Meanwhile, in the meantime, Devin Nunes says, Russian disinformation hoaxers should never hold intelligence posts again. Is that how it will be? Is that the way of things? Well, skipping over from Rumble to thegatewaypundit.com, Bill Gates says AI can help combat digital misinformation and political polarization, which is to say that you almost don't need hoaxers in the intelligence agencies if you can just hand all of that job over to generative AI and chatbots. What was I just saying the other day about ChatGPT likely playing a role in the coming months or years, giving people trouble in the comment section on content, giving people very convincing, persuasive trouble. More from Breitbart. Gates framed climate change as an existential threat to humanity while calling for government measures to force reductions and eventual elimination of fossil fuel consumption and associated carbon dioxide emissions. Quote, it's not optional to have a solution for climate, end quote. 
he held, adding that carbon dioxide emissions must be brought, quote, to zero via clean energy and green energy substitutes, end quote. Development of reliable and affordable energy is in harmony with governmental pursuits of eliminating fossil fuels and development of green infrastructure, Gates claimed. He concluded by speculating that the Russia-Ukraine war could, quote, energize the recognition, end quote, of the supposed need to eliminate carbon dioxide emissions via oil and gas consumption. Quote, it's now seen that in the 10 to 20 year time frame that the goals of climate and the goals of energy security align to say that investment in green infrastructure is even more of a priority than it was before the war, end quote. Meanwhile, many of us look at all of this and we're worn out. We're tired. We're tired of the clickbait. I saw far too much of it when I was scrolling through my email inbox, cleaning out two weeks worth of emails. Amidst the bill reminders, I saw a few, all caps, shocking, (laughs) clickbaity headlines. You'll never believe. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. We all should. And the only ones who wouldn't believe haven't been paying attention. But we should be tired of the sensationalist, hyperbolic, clickbaity headlines on the supposed right, the supposed conservative side of things. On the other end of it, you get the Billings Gazette giving deceptive headlines, for instance, even in a state like Montana, deceptive headlines that'll spin what otherwise is very bad news or should be for Democrats who are making us slaves increasingly, generation after generation. Go figure, the party that fought to keep slavery legal in the South doesn't mind us all being slaves right now. We should be tired of being manipulated by the clickbaity headlines and by the manipulative, selective editing, highly spun headlines. We should also be disgusted by the apathy and the checking out and the refusal to even pay attention to what's going on because we're committed to not doing anything anyways. It's a waste of time because what do you do? That's not responsible. Don't do that. You can't do that. Come on. It's kind of a faithless perspective because what does that imply? That to know these things, you would be miserable because you wouldn't be able to see how God is working in these things, through these things, or even turning them to the good, working them to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You wouldn't be able to see that if you actually looked at what's going on. Well, that's not good. That's not a good way to carry on. What happens when you can't ignore it anymore? What happens when it's right at your doorstep? What happens when it's in your house? I think at that point, it's a little bit late to start paying attention. Daniel Payne over at notthebee.com had a piece up this week. The guy who accurately predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union would like you to know that World War III has already begun. Just so you know, Paul Joseph Watson tweets out, a French historian who accurately predicted the fall of the Soviet Union over a decade in advance says that World War III has already begun as a result of the conflict in Ukraine. And I'm inclined to agree. I think just like the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, Franz Ferdinand launched World War I, we will, if the world stands, look back on the invasion of Ukraine, if not 
the COVID pandemic itself as the launch of World War III. Maybe, just maybe, we'll regard COVID as the beginning of World War III as a kind of bioweapon. Maybe we also won't. (laughs) That's a possibility as well. But going back to Neil Howe and William Strauss briefly before we wrap up this episode, there was an article by Jeremy W. Peters published in the New York Times, May 28th, 2020, updated November 3rd, 2020, titled, They Predicted the Crisis of 2020 in 1991. So how does this end? Subtitle, two scholars coined the term millennial and developed a fan base for their grim theories. Now the surviving one sees a generational realignment happening in American politics that does not bode well for Republicans. Well, about that, as you look down through, you have to appreciate that the political alignment of the New York Times, of the author here, Jeremy Peters, as well as Neil Howe and William Strauss, all factors in to what they predict will happen next. It's one thing to look at the pattern that may or may not be there in decades and centuries past. It's another thing to correctly associate current events, current trends, current figures and institutions with their corresponding equivalence in the previous pattern to this point. It's not to be assumed that just because they've analyzed the data backwards, they're going to accurately predict what happens next. But that said, here's what they say. They see Republicans losing big time, Trump losing big time, perhaps being out of power for a generation because of the handling of COVID. Now, here's what I would add. What if it actually comes out increasingly that COVID in the first place was the brainchild of the deep state and the Democrats and the globalists and the woke types who are supposedly combating climate change, meanwhile jet-setting and releasing thousands of times as much carbon as we will in the course of a year, every trip they take on their private jets. What if it comes out increasingly that these people are liars and hypocrites and they were stealing from us and making us their slaves? What if that comes out and they're out of power for a generation or forever? Because they probably won't be alive anymore in a generation if they're the ones actually holding on to power right now. That would be nice. That would be nice. I would like that. Can it be, though? Can it be? I mean, here's the thing. I was just talking with my wife this morning. Poor her. She hadn't even gotten her first cup of coffee. And I went in and she was awake, but hadn't quite gotten out of bed just yet. And I'm talking with her and just going on and on and on about how I realized these things in my morning Bible reading, finishing up the book of Genesis. And I told her, I said, you know, I, hearkening back to the iRobot clip I played at the top of this episode, I am a smart person, but I might be a really dumb smart person that it bothers me as much as it does. It shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise me. It shouldn't bother me that most people don't know and they don't care because they don't want to do anything about any of this. Okay, sarah, sarah, what will be, will be. And that's the way it's always been. Why am I surprised? 
people like me paying attention and saying, hey, this is what's up and this is what we should do about it, being completely ignored is also <laughs> that's the way it's always been. So why am I surprised? Why am I upset? Why does this bother me? I shouldn't let this bother me. That's dumb. That's stupid. We need to remember that some very smart, stupid people and some very stupid, stupid people have always been a feature of life since the beginning. But God rules and reigns. Stupid people being stupid will not ultimately decide my fate. Smart people being stupid will not ultimately decide my fate. Smart people being smart will ultimately not. I mean, it's, it's actually a great comfort, and it should be, that God's good purposes will be accomplished because it really does simplify, and it really should ease quite a lot of anxiety. It does not mean, it cannot mean, friends, that you avoid problems and you say, ah, well, I'm just trusting that God will figure it out. No, God gave you faculties, use them. But what kind of not being anxious is it when the only way you can be not anxious is by avoidance, minimization, projection, over-spiritualizing what might be cowardice? Possibly. It might be faithlessness. The very last chapter of the 50 in Genesis, in the second to last paragraph in the ESV, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Amen. Amen. This is great stuff. This is great stuff. And this is what God does. And since he doesn't change, this is who he still is. This is who he will be. This is who he will always be. So pay attention. Study, meditate, seek his face, know him, and be known by him, and be comforted. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.